Jill Ruby spoke to the community on Friday, August 12, 2016 at the Western New Mexico University Global Resource Center the evening before this interview was recorded. Jill, welcome and thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's start out. Uh, for listeners who are not familiar with Sandia National Labs, Jill, maybe you can give us an overview of the facilities and mission with a little history of the origin and evolution of the labs. Sure. Uh, Sandia was established nearly 70 years ago in 1949 as a laboratory to do nuclear weapons research and development. Since 1949, the laboratory has grown a lot. Uh, It's in Albuquerque. Also, we have a facility, a major facility in Livermore, California. Our Albuquerque facility has uh, nearly 12,000 employees. Our Livermore facility has 1,200 employees. Uh, Both of our facilities are multi-mission today. Uh, We do work not only in nuclear weapons, but we do work in nuclear nonproliferation, nuclear security, We do energy work, work in cybersecurity, uh, work in chemical and biological defense, um, work in space. We uh, advance defense products, and very healthy, vibrant laboratory. Uh, Sandy is also a federally funded research and development center, a very special type of institution in the United States that is operated... As a research, as a government research facility, but with the best practices of the private sector. How would you describe the contributions and impact of Sandia on the economic and social fabric of New Mexico? And in particular, how is southwestern New Mexico affected by the projects and the vitality of this institution in northern New Mexico? Well, of course, we think of ourselves as a central New Mexico laboratory because we think of Los Alamos as the northern New Mexico laboratory. We spend uh, about $260 million in contracts in the state of New Mexico in addition to our payroll. I don't have the statistics on how much of that goes to southwestern New Mexico, uh, but I would hope, uh, because the New Mexico businesses are spread throughout the state, uh, that a fair bit is experienced here and benefits uh, southwestern New Mexico. We do operate a facility in Carlsbad. We have 30 to 40 Sandia employees in Carlsbad, uh, New Mexico, who do the licensing, the science behind the licensing for the waste isolation pilot plant. Okay, so Jill Ruby, what is the role of Sandia National Labs today with respect to nuclear weapons, so research, development, and management of the U.S. nuclear arsenal? Well, today we have three, we talk about the nuclear weapons program in three elements. One is to sustain the nuclear weapons that this country has decided to keep in the stockpile. Another is to refurbish those weapons as they, as they become older, uh, to make sure they remain safe, secure, and reliable. And then finally, we also maintain the capabilities, the scientific base, and the test capabilities to assure that we can continue to have a nuclear weapon stockpile that's safe, secure, and reliable. All of those elements are important. Um, the assessment of the stockpile is a responsibility that the laboratory has and that I personally have, along with my uh, other national laboratory director colleagues, uh, to uh, write a letter every year uh, to the secretaries of energy and defense who turn around and then write a letter to the President of the United States making a statement about the safety, security, and reliability of the stockpile. Very, uh, very important, the most important uh, obligation that I have as a national lab director. Today, uh, much of our nuclear weapons stockpile is being refurbished. Uh, We don't put new military characteristics in our weapon. That's the policy of the United States, no new military characteristics. But in order to assure that the weapons are safe, secure, and reliable, we do have to redo some of the uh, engineering components. Uh, most of these weapons were designed to be, 20, to be in the stockpile 20 or 25 years. All, most of them have been in the stockpile much longer than that. So we just update the electronics any O-rings, things like that in the weapon that to make sure that we're still confident uh, of their reliability and particularly of their safety and security. Jill Ruby, you've described the Sandia Labs as a 
Vibrant Multi-Mission Engineering Laboratory. Please tell us about some of the non-nuclear projects that you see as most promising at Sandia. And I noticed that recently one of your units got an award for uh, contributing to the widespread commercialization of hydrogen infrastructure, enabling adoption of hydrogen fuel cell technology for more sustainable vehicles for getting them on the road much faster than would have been previously possible. So what's most promising in the non-nuclear areas of the lab? Yeah, that, uh, thank you. That's a great example, actually. I have, I like to say there's no secret that there's hydrogen in the hydrogen bomb. So we actually know a lot about how to store hydrogen um, and how to use hydrogen. So hydrogen as a fuel for cleaner vehicles is uh, something that's been of interest to us for a long time. Uh, we've used, we've explored that at length, and uh, we're now seeing some real traction, especially um, in California, uh, wanting to establish um, a highway, a hydrogen highway, if you will, uh, for clean uh, uh, for clean vehicles. We do have a lot of work in combustion research, so we're very interested in trying to make transportation cleaner, more efficient, uh, less less emission to, for our climate. That's a program we've been involved in for over 30 years. We are involved in renewable energy programs. Uh, New Mexico is a great place to do solar research. Uh, It's also a great place to do wind research. We do both. Of course, we do have knowledge of nuclear power and and the associated issues of nuclear waste. Uh, We have um, a lot of work in nuclear security, uh, as other countries in particular are expanding their nuclear energy programs. The U.S. nuclear energy program isn't expanding much, but around the world, the nuclear energy program is expanding significantly. So we work with other countries to make sure they're expanding nuclear energy in a safe, secure method and that it's sustainable. And so just to be clear, in the areas of the lab's work that are considered at least non-nuclear weapons, nuclear energy and management of nuclear byproducts is considered non-nuclear in a sense. Well, it's non-nuclear weapons. So we sort of... We think about the laboratory as nuclear weapons and other associated work that either builds from the direct knowledge of nuclear weapons or from the capabilities associated with what we need to do in the weapons program. And in fact, let's in, in all honesty, the weapons program advances, the technology advances slowly. First, we don't touch nuclear weapons very often. And when we do, we have to have very, very reliable technologies. So in order to stay at the cutting edge of engineering and science, the work that we do in other program areas is extremely important um, to attract and retain the kind of talent we need for the weapons program and to advance our capabilities. Thank you. Uh, Jill Ruby, a follow-up question on technology transfer. How how does Sandia bring technologies that it develops to market? Um, I understand it's part of Sandia's mission to um, provide these technologies for the public good. How does that happen? Uh, That's a great question, and it's an area where we're really placing some emphasis trying to improve our technology transfer as a way to have vibrant economic growth in the state of New Mexico in particular. Uh, so we uh, we license we we patent and license technologies, uh, and that is the primary method uh, that we use for technology transfer. Is that is we patent technologies, make them available for people to license, and then work with licensees to mature them to the point of having products that they can sell for the for the uh, economic development. Now. In addition to that, we often do pathfinder work and projects funded by customers, funded by the U.S. government, where they will then want to con- they'll want to develop that product uh, and and buy a significant amount of that product. And we don't do manufacturing of product. We don't make a profit. We do pathfinding research. And so we also work very closely, sometimes from the very beginning, with a customer when we develop something of developing a path of how we're going to develop that technology and take it to the private sector. Okay. Jill Ruby, as director of the Sandia National Laboratories, what is your vision 
of the future of the labs, and in particular, what would be your aspirations for the mission of the labs if the United States and the world were to actually succeed in the stated goal of moving toward total elimination of nuclear weapons? Yeah, that's a great question. So we... uh, First, I would just say uh, if and when the United States succeeds in that objective, uh, I believe that there will always be some maintenance of capability, right? We'll always have to worry about breakout uh, and the objective that, you know, another country decides to, in fact, redevelop nuclear weapons. Compliance monitoring. Compliance monitoring and just maintaining some knowledge and capability. Uh, I believe that will happen. So we will we want to address what as a multi-mission laboratory, we want to address the most important large-scale problems in the United States that industry might not be able to take on or universities might not be able to take on, uh, the special role of government. And what that will be, you know, in that time frame is hard to know. Certainly, we still have a long way to go to develop clean energy technologies, and um, a lot of pathfinding research will be necessary before those become economically viable for industry to take on. That's one area that I think will be, you know, be sustained. Um, It's hard to know beyond that. Will water become a big problem? Will climate become a big problem? Does the government want to be involved in that area of research? It seems likely to be the case. Uh, But when this will happen, whether, you know, it seems unlikely that it will happen in my career. Uh, It does seem like the lab, I believe, Sandy, is well positioned today with the the great engineers and scientists we have and the wide variety of work we have to help with the major issues this nation will face, whatever they may be. Okay, Civil Discourse and Earth Matters will return after a short break. Please stay with us. Welcome back to Civil Discourse and Earth Matters. Our guest is Jill Ruby, director of the Sandia National Laboratories. I'm Jamie Newton, co-hosting this program with Allison Civic. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, Jill Ruby, since the advent of nuclear weapons, there have been numerous incidents in which an accidental detonation was narrowly avoided and radioactive material has been accidentally released. Please tell us how Sandia works to prevent accidental nuclear explosions and radiation releases. Yeah, well, this is the heart of what Sandia does. And I actually, I hope you've read, I recommend this book, Command and Control by Eric Slosser. It's a great book. We had him as a speaker at the laboratory. I especially enjoyed his talk. He ended with, I sincerely wish you the best of luck. Uh, And I think that was a perfect way to end a discussion of nuclear command and control and security and safety. We spend, um, we, the reason we want the best, you know, we, we say we have the best and brightest at Sandia. The reason we want the best and brightest at Sandia is to prevent any unauthorized use of nuclear weapons, any ability for anybody to get their hands on their weapons, uh, any ability to have any kind of an accidental detonation that disperses nuclear materials. Of course, the details of how we do this, I, you know, I won't go into, but I will tell you it is why half of my workforce gets up every day and comes to work is to assure the safety and security of our weapons. And we have... Um, We've been accused of being detail-oriented, and I love that accusation uh, because every time uh, people say, my goodness, you're so detail-oriented, I say, and you ought to feel very, very good about your, your nation's nuclear weapons stockpile. That's right. So, Joe Ruby, director of Sandia National Laboratories, yesterday the Washington Post reported that Republican leaders in the Senate are planning to remove the word limited from policy statements on U.S. defenses against nuclear attack. And that would enable the next president to, quoting from the Washington Post, significantly ramp up production, modernization, and development of defensive weapons aimed against bigger nuclear powers. That would be bigger than, say, North Korea. That could incite a new arms race in offensive weaponry. 
Is Sandia involved in developing technology to defend the U.S. against nuclear attack? And in your judgment, is effective defense against a major antagonist like Russia even realistic? Well, Sandia does have some involvement in missile defense, uh, most of which I can't talk about in, in very much detail. I would just say that discussions like this in the Congress are very important. Uh, the Republican senators may have said this is what they want. This is far from a done deal. There will be lots of public discourse about it and a lot of thinking, uh, I believe, in the defense community about whether or not, on balance, this is a positive thing, uh, whether this will incite an arms race or whether this will do what they intend, which is simply to protect the United States from any uh, incoming attack. It is the case that technology develops quickly, and the uh, ability to provide more effective defense improves uh, with technology development. This is a very complex issue uh, and uh, one that I believe this country will think very carefully about before any policy changes are made. If missiles were placed in space, which would dramatically shorten Delivery time, perhaps to less than a minute, could there be, are you able to say, uh, realistically, a defense against that kind of attack? Well, I would just say that uh, today that's not where nuclear weapons are. So uh, we haven't, uh, technology hasn't been developed to protect against something that, you know, we doesn't exist and that we don't necessarily anticipate existing soon. So, look, I mean, nuclear weapons are a scary thing. Uh, you know, we work at the laboratory to make them safe and secure. And, you know, all of us, just like the, most of the citizens, if not all of the citizens of the United States, hope they never need to be used. But anticipating arms race races is maybe a little too scary, uh, you know, most of the countries today, I mean, we do have uh, nuclear, weapon nuclear weapons treaties with Russia. We do, unfortunately, some, see some proliferation in the world of nuclear weapons, and it's been very hard to stop. Uh, nonetheless, from a nuclear weapons perspective, the world is safer today than it was during the height of the Cold War arms race. And, you know, our hope and our work is aimed to keep it that way. Jill Ruby, is there any progress in resolving disposal of nuclear waste? People probably know that the Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Repository in Nevada was defunded in 2010. And now the Department of Energy is considering expanding the waste isolation pilot project in Carlsbad, New Mexico. Um, this is a facility that was originally licensed for low-level radioactive waste and had a serious accident in February 2014, releasing plutonium to the atmosphere, after which the facility still has not reopened. So in your opinion, what's the future of nuclear power if we can't manage the nuclear waste that comes out of nuclear power generation? Yeah, I think this is a serious issue. Uh, unfortunately, the United States hasn't come up with a disposal plan for uh, waste from nuclear power plants. One, that the Department of Energy, uh, the U.S. government, has decided to go to a consent-based siting approach for any future nuclear waste uh, repository. Um, Carlsbad and the region around Carlsbad has been fairly friendly to such approaches, which is why I think WIP is being considered for possible expansion. It is, I think, stopping nuclear power plant development in the United States. And this is a mixed uh, mixed issue, right? On the one hand, nuclear power is clean from the perspective of the climate. Uh, on the other hand, uh, nuclear waste is real, and we have to come up with a plan to manage nuclear waste. And I think, actually, the th it's been balanced in the U.S. That is, we haven't seen expansion of nuclear power in part because of the nuclear waste issue. And um, I believe that there was DOE has a plan to reopen WIP by the end of 2016, but I think that 
that is looking probably unrealistic. Um, what's what's the latest on, on WIP reopening? I think there's an intent to really try to reopen WIP, uh, but of course all of these things are complicated, and I think there's some possibility it could go longer. But the plan is, and I think you know they're very aggressively working towards reopening WIP at the end of the calendar year. I'd like to follow up on a remark that I believe I remember accurately from your presentation uh, at the university yesterday. Sandia consults to other countries around the world that are going in the direction of new nuclear power generation plants. Could you talk about concerns that you have about their commitment and capability with respect to managing the waste byproducts? Yeah, there are a lot of countries planning on expanding or getting into nuclear power for the first time. And I have lots of concerns about the way that will work. Some of it is how they'll handle the waste, but there's also just the entire system, the regulatory system, the system that secures nuclear materials, what kinds of nuclear byproducts are produced, and so on. So we do work, uh, funded by the U.S. government, by the way, largely, with other countries to help them develop a systems view of what it means to get into nuclear energy and nuclear power. Uh, waste remains uh, complicated everywhere. Uh, we do know that there are certain geologies where it's best to store nuclear waste, and those geologies tend to exist around the world. So we try to work uh, with partners around the world uh, to provide the scientific basis. But, of course, the decision on where nuclear repositories will be, how they'll be operated, uh, you know, are not ours to make. We just try to help do science. To make good de- to, to help them make good decisions. To Ruby, I'd like to ask you a question about care and responsiveness of whistleblowers within institutions that have very strong security precautions. In 2007, a security analyst, Sean Carpenter, was awarded $4.7 million by a jury for wrongful termination by Sandia Labs. After reporting to his supervisors in 2005 that Sandia's network was under attack by hackers with Chinese IP addresses, as were dozens of U.S. Army bases and military contractors, Carpenter was told by his supervisors to do nothing further, so he took his findings to the Army and the FBI. Sandia then revoked his security clearance and fired him. This was long before you became director, but has Sandia altered the management culture that apparently tried to suppress bad news rather than to address a serious threat to security? And as director, how do you balance organizational self-protection with effective responses to real risks? I don't know a lot about of the details of that case, but I, sh- I can say I sure hope it wouldn't happen now. Uh, we work hard as I work hard as a laboratory leader, uh, at, along with my entire leadership team, uh, to develop a transparent culture and a culture of trust, where security and safety, in particular, are held in high regard. And I think today, I would hope. Uh, that such a case would come forward early uh, and be handled uh, in a transparent way. It is hard. Look, we get there's a lot of things that go on in a laboratory, a national security laboratory that you know, has around 10,000 people. Um, and, you know, we we work very hard to develop a culture where people will come forward and are rewarded for coming forward. And we'll see, you know, I hope this is a legacy of my leadership and the leadership team that we have today, that such a culture will persist. Thank you. We'll resume our program on the Sandia National Laboratories with Director Jill Ruby after a brief break. Don't go away. Welcome back to Civil Discourse and Earth Matters. Our guest today is Jill Ruby, Director of the Sandia National Laboratories, and I'm Allison Civic, co-hosting this program with Jamie Newton. Let's kick off this segment talking about Sandia's Resilient Cities program, and the lab's mission encompasses ensuring security and building resiliency in our communities. So how do, how do you do this? 
this is a great new topic that Sandia has been involved in with just uh, just a few years, really, although it was preceded by um, more than a decade's worth of work that we did with Los Alamos National Laboratories for the Department of Homeland Security and understanding and modeling infrastructure, uh, particularly infrastructure against natural disasters or perhaps a terrorist action. So what we have at Sandia and Los Alamos is a large database of the infrastructure of the United States and many models to probe and perturb the infrastructure and to see how it rattles through. And in particular, we like to look at effects beyond the obvious. So, for example, if an area uh, floods, clearly you have to move people and, and make sure they have places to go. But then you have to start worrying about, okay, what are the what are the trade routes through that area? What other parts of the United States are going to be affected and so forth? So we've used that that set of models and that uh, set of data uh, to move into this area of resilience, which is a way to look at how a city uh, could recover quickly if anything were to happen to it and how to prepare for that. So we've partnered with the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, the Rockefeller Foundation has a program called 100 Resilient Cities with a cities uh, uh, propose uh, projects, uh, grants. Uh, they get grants for work to make their city more resilient or their area more resilient, their metropolitan area more resilient. And once they get those grants, one of their options is to work with Sandia to help prioritize what are the, what pieces of infrastructure are most vulnerable, what are the effects of different things, so they can make good decisions on what to spend their grant money on so that when they're finished with those projects, they actually have a more resilient city. And just to, to follow up, have there been instances where the modeling that, that Sandia has done has been helpful in, say, uh, responding to a nat- natural disaster or, you know, that you've seen those results in terms of improving resiliency in some of these communities? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we did a, we've done a lot of work that ha- I think has improved the response of FEMA and the Department of Homeland Security in the event of a natural disaster. And in particular, we work, we've worked a lot on hurricanes. Uh, what's That's the best way to relocate people. And what are the things you need to start worrying about after that? So just, you know, real response, high up position supplies, how to make sure people have uh, clear routes out where they might go, uh, and so forth. So we've had, uh, I think, a lot of success in helping the Department of Homeland Security. And the resilience area, we, we go, we really... Go into cities and enable a public discussion that is supported by science and modeling so that their awareness of what the real issues regarding resilience will be. And we've worked with multiple cities to do this. Uh, I think it's still early because this is work that we've just done in the last couple of years that hasn't fortunately been tested by actual uh, disasters yet. Uh, but we have we feel much better that they're making decisions with the full scope in mind and not just the obvious. Mm-hmm. Jill Ruby, the climate security program at Sandia National Labs, which you direct, works to understand and prepare the nation for the national security implications of climate change. When I saw that on your website, I felt encouraged that this is an acknowledgement by the government and its support that climate change is a real phenomenon that needs to be taken seriously. So how does climate change threaten national security and what are the technologies you're developing to help solve those problems? From a national security perspective, uh, climate, we worry a lot about the Arctic, and in particular the opening of the Arctic uh, to military transport uh, so we, as a result, we have a lot of work that we do focus on the Arctic. But I do just want to say that we're, we're concerned about the effects of climate change for things much broader than just national security. But from a national security perspective, a lot of our work is focused 
focus on the Arctic. Um, we do two major things in climate. Uh, one is we uh, help collect that we collect data and help others collect data by operating a user facility that the Department of Energy funds at a Liktok point in Alaska. So we have instrumentation there. We have uh, facilities there so that scientists from universities um, or any place around the world, not just the United States, from around the world, can uh, turn in proposals of going to Liktok Point uh, and working with Sandia scientists uh, to put diagnostics to take measurements. It's a very exciting program. It's a you know it's a harsh climate, so it's not easy to operate diagnostics in that climate. Uh, but we now have some limited ability to use uh, drones in that area to collect information, uh, as well as tethered balloons. And so we have a very active program working with, again, scientists from around the world to collect data. In addition, we do also work on the model that the Department of Energy has been developing for climate. It's climate modeling is hard. It's probably as hard of a problem for climate as you can imagine. Uh, the world's a big place. You have to have uh, high fidelity in some elements of the model to get predictions that are accurate. So what Sandia has done is really work on helping develop this model in a way that it has a it can have a variety of fidelity. So in some areas, it can be less specific and um, lower fidelity. In other areas, very high fidelity. And that the model will still run in a reasonable amount of time on a very large, sophisticated computer. So our, those have been our two major contributions to climate. Thank you. Jill Ruby, there's a there's a nexus between climate change and energy. And I'm wondering how is Sandia's energy security program working to develop clean energy sources that can meet the needs of our modern society but at the same time mitigate the impacts of climate change? Yeah, our our energy program as it relates to climate is largely focused on renewable energies. Uh, so we have a, a solar program, a solar research program that works on both improving photovoltaics, uh, making them more efficient, less expensive, uh, and that we've had a lot of success in. Sandia has a specific capability in microelectronics and um, the materials associated with those, which happen to also be similar materials to photovoltaics. And so we've done a lot to improve photovoltaics. We've also worked with that same set of capabilities on things um, like LED lighting, which has also an impact on energy efficiency. And energy efficiency is very important for climate so in addition to the photovoltaic program in solar, we have a solar thermal program. Solar thermal program means that you, you use the heat as opposed to conversion immediately from uh, sunlight to, uh, to electricity. And we've had a longstanding program. In fact, I'm proud to say that's where I was hired into the laboratory to work on solar energy, and in particular, a concept where uh, you reflect uh, solar energy from mirrors we call heliostats onto a tower and heat water going through tubes into steam and use that to turn turbine just like you would in a, a coal-fired or other kind of power plant. That's gotten more sophisticated with time. There's still uh, some solar activity uh, happening at Sandia that works on, um, that is advancing technologies that I worked on uh, over 30 years ago when I was a young staff member at Sandia at Solar. In addition, we have wind energy programs. We've developed a lot of different kinds of technologies for wind. Um, and in fact, this uh, wind turbine that looks kind of like an egg beater was a technology that was originally developed by Sandia. And we continue to do research to maximize the efficiency of wind farms. So we do a lot of work in renewable energies, which primary focus is for at this point for climate. And just to follow up, those technologies that you've developed are getting transferred uh, immediately out into the into the field, commercialized. Yeah, that is our hope. Uh, not all of the technologies we work on, you know, are 
are good enough to immediately transfer to the private sector. Energy is a very hard field for the government to work in because our energy sector is owned by the private sector, right? The, our energy in the U.S. is managed and, and provided by the private sector. So the government does research that it hopes the private sector can pick up and then utilize. But in order to do that, it has to be uh, quite cheap. The technologies for energy today uh, produce power at very expensive. And in fact, 30 years ago, when I worked in solar energy, our goal was to develop technologies that would would produce power at five cents a kilowatt hour. Today's goal is to produce power at about five cents a kilowatt hour, right? So over a long period of time, energy has not gotten more expensive, right? So it just puts a lot, I mean, there's been a lot of inflation since then, but the goal is about the same. So uh, energy technologies, other energy technologies have actually gotten cheaper. And so it puts more and more pressure on developing less expensive, renewable, or alternative energy technologies. Water. I say that word, and I know that a lot of our listeners are suddenly going to be totally focused on what we're talking about now, because many of us expect that we are on our way into life in a hotter, drier southwest New Mexico. The implications of long-term drought due to climate change are of great concern to a lot of people here. So please tell us about Sandia's work related to water and national security? Well, unfortunately, uh, we don't have uh, a lot of work in water. Uh, we have uh, some smaller segments of work in water. It has not been a focus uh, for the Department of Energy yet. Um, we do have some modeling that we do on water and energy, how they're related to one another. Most energy technologies need water, and most water, uh, new water techniques need energy, right? So there's a nexus of those two te- those two technologies or those, those two issues. And we've done historically a lot of modeling in that, in fact, more than 20 years. Uh, but it isn't a large program. It's a program that we care a lot about, partly because of where we live and work. But it, I think it will become increasingly important. It will become increasingly important with climate change uh, because this dynamic of where water is will change in the U.S. and therefore power production. But today our work in that is relatively limited and concerns mostly some models. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, so Jill Ruby, some of our listeners may be familiar with Sandia's work to assist Southwest New Mexico in developing a decision support model to decide how to meet future water needs here in southwestern New Mexico under the Arizona Water Settlements Act. Is this a, an example of an approach Sandia often takes, that is, assisting communities with real-world problems that rather than maybe operating in the realm of the theoretical, you're really you know, helping local communities with, with things that they really need solutions to? Yes, uh, this is this is a great thing about being an engineering lab. We mentioned earlier that Sandia is an engineering lab. I always say we're proudly an engineering laboratory. We love to actually make a difference. I mean, engineering is meant to impact people's lives in a positive way. And we have a great uh, capability in decision support. That is, we talked about this when we talked about resilience as well. We love our engineers to go into the field. They love to go into the field, work with people in communities, talk about real problems, sort those out, help put them in a model to show their interconnect, their connectivity to one another, and to help communities make decisions, not to make the decisions because we're not the decision makers that provide tools to help people make informed decisions that will be the most useful over the long run. Okay, thank you. We'll be right back after this short break, and we'll continue our discussion about Sandia National Labs with Director Jill Ruby. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Civil Discourse and Earth Matters. Our guest is Jill Ruby, director of the Sandia National Laboratories. I'm Jamie Newton, co-hosting this program with Allison Civic. 
Jill, you are the first woman to direct a National Nuclear Security Administration National Laboratory. You're a trailblazer. You've risen right through the glass ceiling that is so often a barrier for professional women. What are your reflections on your journey to this position, and what advice can you offer to women with technical expertise and management aspirations? Well, you know, it's an honor to have uh, been a trailblazer, although, honestly, I just did what I do, right? I, uh, I didn't have an aspiration that I needed to achieve something, but I had an aspiration I needed to do something, right? And uh, fortunately for me, uh, it makes me very proud to be part of a laboratory that chose the first uh, female national lab director. I would say, you know, my advice to young women, mid-career women in science and engineering is, you know, let your capabilities shine. Don't be discouraged uh, by people trying to put, you know, put you down or second guess what you may have to offer, but just simply make sure that you give, you know, everything you can. I always, actually, everybody doubting me, for me, my my personality just made me more determined. Uh, you know, I think I was just blessed with that personality. It, it came naturally. You know, if you doubt that, I will show you. Uh, and, and it, you know, actually, my professional career in most respects was easier than my education career, where the professors at the time when I was a student in mechanical engineering did not really necessarily believe that mechanical engineering was a place for women. And uh, I tell a story that, you know, I think it was obviously very important to me. It was in a design class in mechanical engineering. So, you know, there are parts of mechanical engineering that are more science computationally focused, and there are other parts that are very design focused. I had a design professor who said to me, you know, no woman would ever get an A in my class. Well, you know, naturally, that was I only had one goal, and that was to make sure I didn't get a single point off of anything uh, so that, uh, you know, I could change his mind. And, you know, not only for me, but, of course, you know, for the field and for the people who would come uh, after me. But it's actually been a tremendously great career. Um, there were times during the course of my engineering career that I – wondered why I had chosen such a difficult path. Um, you know, I have lots of friends uh, that that are my male colleagues, of course, but it was hard to have very many uh, female friends because there just weren't very many people around. And of course, even if there are a few people around, they might not be the kinds of, you know, they might not necessarily be people you want to be friends with, right? And so it's not like, you, you know, you're going to if there are three women, you know, you're all going to bond because you, in fact, might be very different from one another. So there were times when it seemed like an awfully hard career, but it's the what I could do. I enjoyed so much what I did and the impact that the work could have and truthfully the wonderful colleagues that I had a chance to, to work with that as I look back, I now find myself as a spokesperson for engineering frequently, and I hadn't really given it a lot of thought until I have to you know, stand up and talk about engineering as a profession now frequently. And the more I talk about it, the more passionate I actually get about it, because I remember all of the wonderful things about it that on a day-to-day -day basis you might forget. But over time, uh, what you can do as an engineer, the variety of problems you are able to work on, the impact that you can make, and the fact that you so frequently work in teams. Uh, as it's a special thing about a national laboratory. I would say we do team science. Uh, we don't do individual investigator work that much. We work in teams to accomplish something big. Uh, it's always extremely rewarding. That's great. Jill Ruby, from this personal professional experience you've just described to us and your role as director of Sandia National Laboratories, what advice do you have for students who are interested in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, the STEM fields? How can middle school and high school students prepare for a career in these fields? And do you see ways that students from around here, Grant County, can be engaged with Sandia's training programs? What skills do you look for in prospective employees at Sandia? 
Look, I think for science, technology, engineering, and math, there are there are a couple of issues associated with um, choosing those fields. First, you do have to work hard. I frequently tell students, even if you're inclined, right, in science or engineering or math, it won't come easy. Those are not fields that, you know, you can sleep through the class and go in and take the final and do well. You have to practice. You have to pay attention. You have to listen. You have to attempt to understand. And even if you understand naturally the way the world works, you won't be able to solve the, the equations about that unless you pay attention and work at it, right? And so it's not a field that you can expect to be easy. But its reward is in part because of that, that, you know, if you work hard, you can do it and you can understand, you can stick with it. And, you know, so I frequently tell the, you know, young, the students that I interact with, you can't be, you can't give up, you can't quit. If you want to do this, you know, you'll have good times and bad times along the way, but in the end, it will be its own reward. Uh, Don't give up. With respect to the local community, I think, you know, certainly there are uh, ways that uh, students here can, you know, interact. Uh, we, We have we we hire an awful lot of New Mexico students to work uh, at the laboratory. Around 250 or so New Mexico students come uh, from high school and universities to work either for the summer or year-round uh, with Sandia. Uh, I've talked to a couple folks here uh, this weekend who are interested in working at the laboratories, and we'll see what we can do about that. You know, it isn't an easy place. I'll be very honest with you. You have to be really good. Right. Uh, You have to be at the top of your class uh, over and over again, typically to get into Sandia. We we're proud of hiring the best and the brightest. We have high standards. Uh, We expect a lot of our workforce. Part of why we hire the very best people is not only because of what we do, but it's also because we expect people to move around the laboratory. So we want people who can learn a new field when we learn need to learn a new field. We don't expect people to stay in the same field their entire career because we work on what the country wants us to work on. Most of the people that come to Sandia come for 30 years or more. Our attrition rate at the laboratory is just about 2%, right? So almost everybody that comes stays. And we want those people to have great careers. We want them to be curious. We want them to know how to think critically. We want them to be willing to learn what the country thinks is the hardest and most important scientific problem to work on. Jill Ruby, just a follow-up question on that. You mentioned teams. What is the importance of teams? Because I think that that really is a movement from 25, 30 years ago where you didn't really see teams so much, but now we see teams all the time in universities and even, you know, middle school, high school teams coming together to solve a problem. What, what, what is it about teams? Yeah, you're right. That's a great question. And that really has changed. So at Sandia, we always sort of needed big teams because we solve really hard problems that have uh, lots of multidisciplinary uh, effects. But it is now much more popular. My children um, did much more in teams and schools than I did. And certainly universities are creating all these multidisciplinary centers to do things. And I think this is a great movement. What is it about teams? Well, I think there are a couple of things. One is... We tend to, because of the length of our education programs, our formal education programs in the United States, we tend to be learn one field well, and even that's hard. The field of mechanical engineering, you know, there's a lot to learn. So in order to solve a really complex problem, you need to work with other people. And so that's why we do teams and the diversity of thought. Now, in middle school and high school, uh, I think the teams are largely to learn to solve problems with other people, which is also really important because that can absolutely get in your way. So it's not that they necessarily take on bigger problems, but they learn to work with people who think differently than they do, who work harder or not as hard, and how do you deal with that, and what are the human dynamics of that. I think it is important to be successful in the workplace. 
Okay. Uh, last question for today. The Sandia National Labs have programs of collaboration with leading universities around the nation, including the University of New Mexico. Jill Ruby, tell us about these programs and opportunities that they offer to New Mexico students with interest in STEM careers. Well, we, uh, we have these programs with universities to allow us to be see the leading-edge science being done at universities and allow the university students to see the practical problems that we need to solve. So it's, you know, a great marriage. We have examples in particular at UNM where we operate a joint laboratory called the Advanced Materials Laboratory. For over 20 years, we've operated this laboratory where the students from UNM get degrees in various fields at UNM, but all associated with materials and materials research in some way. But they're also, uh, our staff are there working side by side with them, mentoring them and teaching them how to work on practical problems uh, while doing great science. Uh, so I would say the UNM interaction, of course, is, is, is it the easiest for us because we're all in the same city, but we have decades of history uh, working together uh, with with our with our, the university center. Now we're we're proposing some new interactions with New Mexico State and New Mexico Tech. We also currently work with them, but we're trying to enhance and improve and deepen those relationships uh, and even hoping that, you know, they can use our facilities to do research and we can use their facilities to do research. So that's a really synergistic approach. I think it offers, look, the, you know, the, the government – needs that both governments and universities struggle with enough money to do research and enough unique facilities to do research. So it seems to me a natural that we would take advantage of each other's capabilities as opposed to the traditional way, which is establish your own mm-hmm. <laughs> to make sure you have it. But our intent now is because the laboratory is large, we don't need to grow a lot more. But what we need to do is continue to impact national security and to use the best resources that there are to do that. You've been listening to a joint production of Civil Discourse and Earth Matters. We've explored the mission and projects of the Sandia National Laboratories with our guest, Jill Ruby, director of the laboratories. Jill Ruby, thank you so much for being with us on the program. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks to our audio engineer, Kyle Johnson, and to the members and supporters of Gila Mimbres Community Radio for making this program possible. And thank you for listening to Civil Discourse and Earth Matters. For GMCR and KURU, I'm Allison Civic. And I'm Jamie Newton. Please join us again on Civil Discourse, Earth Matters, and take advantage of our many other wonderful programs on your community radio station, Gila Mimbres Community Radio and KURU 89.1 FM. If you're not yet a member, please join us. This station, your community radio station, relies on your support to thrive and stay on the air and offer you the programming you've come to expect from us. Thanks so much.